covenant ceremony that is outlined in Hebrews chapter 9 as well, which we read a few moments ago. And hear the word of God. Now he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, uh, Nahab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments and all the people answered with one voice and said all the words which the Lord has said we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. Then he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of the uh, of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant, which uh, the Lord has made with you according to all these words. That's what was quoted, by the way, in in Hebrews 9. Then Moses went up also Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel and there was under his feet as it were a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heaven, heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand, so they saw God, and they ate and drank. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this word, uh, something which uh, indeed is uh, terribly significant when we consider it in light of Uh, Not just the old covenant, but its relation to the new covenant and laying these these fundamental structures of redemption. And God, we praise you for it and ask you that uh, there might be some light shed upon such a thing uh, or such features as we find them now in this passage through the preaching. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, we just concluded what was the first major segment uh, following the giving of the Ten Commandments where the Lord calls Moses into the darkness up the mountain and he speaks to him there and says, this is what what I want you to tell the people. And uh, as I say, that follows the Ten Commandments and it takes us through the end of uh, chapter 23, which we concluded last time. There, Moses leaving the people at the foot of the mountain as he enters the darkness and there God gives him what are called the judgments Or the laws, which uh, he later then gives to the people in verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words and all the judgments. Uh, And so that's what he's summarizing there. You also saw that uh, referenced in Hebrews uh, 9. Uh, Let me me actually read that. He said, uh, For when Moses, verse 19, had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood. Uh, And so he gives them the law that the Lord has given him. And then uh, we see this covenant ceremony commences. Uh, And so that's what we have in chapter 24. It marks a new point in the transaction. And in some ways, I, I mean the transaction between God and the people, having given them the Ten Commandments and brought them out of the land of Egypt. And in some ways, uh, chapter 24 is the most significant, even more significant than the giving of the Ten Commandments. For it is here that the covenant is really made between God and the people. Or perhaps we could say that it was ratified or sealed with the people. 
Thus far, God has only outlined it. He has made his will clear. But here the covenant is actually brought into effect. It is inaugurated. And it is because of this uh, that uh, I would say, and I, I think I've been saying, that there is hardly a more important chapter in the entire book of Exodus or, or, or even in the entirety of the Old Testament. The Gospel of the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, chapter 24. Let me just briefly outline its basic features uh, or, or the basic uh, idea. So lo- the Lord calls Moses up. Uh, That's how the chapter begins, which presupposes that he had come down again and rejoined the people, verses 1 and 2. And so we see in verse 3 that Moses comes down and he tells the people the laws and the judgments. Again, everything we've been considering in chapters 21 through 23. And uh, the people consent to this. They say, all that you've said we will do. And they'll say that again in a little bit. And then those words are written down in verse 4. And the next morning, we see uh, Moses building an altar and 12 pillars around it. Uh, the second part of verse 4. And then sacrifices are made on that altar, verse 5. And the blood is put in two basins, half of which is sprinkled on the altar, verse 6. And then in verse 7, uh, he reads the book of the covenant to the people. And again, they consent. All that you've said, we will do. Following that, the people are sprinkled By their high priest Moses with the blood of the covenant, verse 8, perhaps the most significant verse in it all. And again, that's the verse that is quoted in Hebrews chapter 9. I'll say it again. The people are sprinkled by Moses, their high priest, with the blood of the covenant. But then it doesn't stop there. Moses goes up the mountain with Aaron and his two sons and 70 elders And there they saw the Lord and got a glimpse of heaven. And the whole of the ceremony is concluded with uh, with the Lord and the people enjoying a meal together, a covenant fellowship meal. Which is seen as uh, the result and the outcome of uh, the blood which was shed and the covenant that was established, the Lord communing with his people. And all of this, that's the basic uh, structure of the passage and the ceremony. All of this we realized, uh, we realize uh, is filled with meaning. And that meaning, each of these points, in fact, is seized upon in the New Testament, especially in the book of Hebrews, since this very passage and this very ceremony is quoted in Hebrews. and, uh, And the point there is that those same features are found in the establishment of a new covenant. And so we ought to try to understand the significance of these features. And the main assertion that I would make about Exodus 24 in light of Hebrews chapter 9 is that grasping the covenant features present in uh, Exodus 24 will help us to explain or excuse me, will help us to understand those same features as they appear in the new covenant. It is the covenant ceremony in Exodus 24 that invests the covenant ceremony in the new covenant with meaning and significance. But the major idea here, without question, is that of covenant. The Lord is making a covenant with the people. This is a covenant ceremony. And the covenant here, once again, is ratified or it is sealed and put into place. It takes effect upon this ceremony. Or some say it is concluded. What began with the Ten Commandments here is concluded. But uh, the point here is that there is this element of completion and consummation, which, again, is 
is uh, represented in the meal on the mountain. And what we ought to see is that the covenant is typical of the new covenant. This is the establishment of the old covenant. It's typical of the establishment of the new covenant. The same features. What happens here typifies, as Matthew Henry says, the covenant of grace between God and believers through Christ. Obviously so, based upon Hebrews 9, which quotes this passage as the basis for these same exact features being found in the establishment of the new covenant. All of them, as I said. All of them are carried forward into the new covenant and they are greatly enhanced and perfected. But the most, que- the most obvious question to ask here before we consider those very features is, what is a covenant? And its most basic feature and expression is that of a relationship. A covenant is a relationship. Or uh, it conveys the idea of communion or fellowship. And here in the context, this is crucially important to understand in in, in grasping why the covenant ceremony involved these uh, exact features. We must uh, grasp that man by sin has forfeited that very thing. He has lost or forfeited communion with God, which he enjoyed in the garden. And so in establishing a covenant, it is not just establishing a fellowship between God and man, but it is restoring that which was lost. And that fact alone will go a long ways in telling us why these features are present. We could also use the, the, the uh, definition that's found in Westminster Confession, chapter 7, uh, section 1. Essentially that it is God's gracious condescension to manifest himself to man as his blessedness and reward. And then in sections 5 and 6 it says that covenant, that gracious covenant, is found in the old and the new, the, the new covenants. If you like, uh, Exodus 24 and Hebrews chapter 9. The same features, just administered uh, a little differently. And in fact, those differences are highlighted when you come to the new covenant. But in both, God is manifesting himself as man's blessedness and reward through faith in Jesus Christ. And what we should notice here, as in all covenants, is uh, the unilateral feature. And what I mean by that is that God is the one who sets the terms. It, it is not as though God, in establishing the covenant, is uh, asking man what he is willing to do. He simply tells man what he expects and what God is willing to do. And then he lays down the covenant. So there's no element of bargaining. That's what I mean. But at the same time, we also notice that having set the terms unilaterally and stated those terms as clearly to man as possible, he then looks to man to agree in consent, which we see in two places, in verse 7 and verse 3, where the, the people say, all that you have said, we will do. This is what Voss calls, uh, speaking of this chapter, a two-sided arrangement. And so a covenant involves both. It's one-sided in the sense of establishing the terms, but it is also, we discover here, two-sided in the sense that man must consent to it. Not in the sense, once again, that man has any part in setting the terms or in establishing the covenant or deciding what that covenant will look like, but solely in the sense that God, having done so, calls upon man to consent. In other words, God doesn't force the terms upon man. He doesn't say you have to do this. 
He doesn't throw anyone into the kingdom of God. He will only save those willing to be saved. And so it's necessary that man must assent or consent to the terms of uh, grace and salvation. And this should be nothing strange to us because, as you know, assent is one of the necessary ingredients in saving faith. It's the first. There's others as well, such as trust. But assent is the first thing. You have to agree to the terms. So this is nothing new or old to find uh, the Lord requiring this of the people. Abraham must believe uh, Genesis chapter 15. And you see the, the covenant ceremony there with the shedding of blood. Once again, here the people must agree all that you've said we will do. We, when the kingdom of God is presented to us in the New Testament, must repent and believe in order to be saved. There must, in that sense, be agreement or consent. God says to man, here are the terms of salvation. If you would be saved, you can be saved only in this way. Or if you prefer, uh, and I think William Guthrie puts it like this, here are the terms of peace, which an offended God offers to man. Here are the terms by which I will be at peace with you. Do you accept them or not? That's how the gospel is presented to us. I would add to that, not just the idea of consent, but involved in that consent, uh, there is also a sense in which we really ought to delight in those terms, or else our assent is nothing. But the point is, man must agree to the terms. But, uh, but seeing it like that, as a two-sided arrangement, what we discover is that a covenant looks something like this. Man and God coming together. These two parties that were estranged are brought back together on terms of peace and enjoying once again uh, true fellowship. A fellowship even which we see uh, anticipates as we find Moses on the mountain and the Lord revealing himself in heavenly glory, uh, the, the fellowship that man will enjoy with God forever in heaven on the basis of the covenant of grace. And so everything here points in that direction. Man and God coming together. The blood which is divided, sprinkled on the altar in the Godward direction, then sprinkled on the people. One blood divided. But in this twofold sprinkling, bringing the two parties together. The, again, the covenant meal at the end. Or uh, how about this? God speaking and the people responding. Something deeply covenantal in that fact as well. In fact, uh, that idea forms the very basis of the fundamental idea of Reformed worship, which is the dialogical principle of worship, that God speaks to us and we respond in turn. And it's this ongoing covenantal conversation that describes what our worship looks like. But something that we also notice, and we're bound to ask this question, because we see the blood which is shed, and yet we look at these very people and we say, that is the apostate generation that fell in the wilderness. We know that that blood didn't save them. At least it didn't save uh, but maybe a couple of them, Moses and, and Joshua and Caleb. But uh, this covenant, Hebrews helps us to see, is it's really no different than the new covenant in that same sense. Because the very book that glories in uh, all of these covenantal features is the very book that warns us uh, about the very apostasy that we find here. And that is the book, again, of Hebrews. And so we must learn to distinguish between the outward and the inward forms and what is really going on and being accomplished by our participation in these things. There is a formal participation in the outward blessings. You can come to church, you can partake of the Lord's Supper, and never be saved. It was exactly the same in the Old Covenant. 
Whereas on the other hand, there is a vital and spiritual participation in the blessings of the covenant in a saving way. So that when you come to church and participate in worship, you're actually saved by these things. Because it is inward, it is vital, it is saving, it is real. Again, that's something that you find in both. You have the formal and you have the spiritual. And in both covenants we find that those who participate outwardly often are apostate. Because their participation was merely formal. But those whose faith was real participated in the saving way that was real. In both covenants. And that's why not everyone who participates in the, sa- in, in the covenant, the old covenant or the new covenant, is saved by it. You can partake of the ceremony and yet still be damned. But now I want to look at these very features that we, are fa- that we find in this covenant ceremony. The features which are present in the old and brought into the new, as uh, we find in Hebrews chapter 9. The... the the, the, the features which are uh, common to both covenants. Uh, and so let me say that what makes the new covenant new, Hebrews helps us to see this very clearly, is not that the features are new. The features are the same. But that the old features are now better and perfect. Again, uh, we could look at those as quotes because those are the exact words that the book of Hebrews uses. The same features, but which are now better and perfect. And here I'm uh, a little more interested in following the outline as found in Hebrews chapter 9 than uh, what we have in Exodus chapter 24. But it's clear that the the argument is the same. Uh, It's the same argument in both. There are five features, although really I think we we could go even beyond that. But these are the main ones that they share in common. And you find them in both chapters. And the first is... The blood. The blood is the crucial idea in both. Uh, this is the blood of the covenant, he says in Exodus uh, 24.8. That is really the key idea. Uh, and everything is seen to depend upon the blood. And then we find uh, the, the blood is really, in, in Hebrews chapter 9, the central idea there as well. Verses 11 through 14 and then 18 through 22, especially 18 through 22. Matching or mirroring Exodus 24, verses 6 through 8. And, and the great principle that is established in both covenants, but which is stated explicitly in verse 22 of Hebrews chapter 9, is that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission. There can be no forgiveness. And so we see that the purpose of the blood was to expiate or to atone for sin, to pardon sin. Or, uh, I, I like the way the, the writer of the Hebrews puts it in one place, to make an end of sin. And so, uh, this was to point man in the direction of a restored relation to God through forgiveness. Which was found and based upon the blood. And what we see is that the blood, again, finding this in both uh, arrangements, has a twofold application. And very often we Christians miss the second of these, but they're both full of significance. And I'm I'm just uh, briefly summarizing really what was a whole series of sermons in Hebrews. First, we see that it was shed. Now, too often we stop there, but that's where it starts. The blood is shed, but then having been shed, it's sprinkled. 
Sprinkling of the altar, sprinkling of the people. And so the sprinkling itself has a twofold application. And we find this fact in both covenants. Not just the shedding of the blood, but the application of the blood in the Godward and the manward directions. But the question which we have, in fact, there's a series of questions. Uh, the first question is, why was blood necessary and what does it accomplish? Well, again, as we find in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, the blood was necessary in order to accomplish remission, that there might be a restoration of fellowship. And so what God is indicating in these sacrifices, he states explicitly in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, again, without the remission of, uh, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission. And we should appreciate the precise force of this statement. It is that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness, not even from God. In other words, apart from the shedding of blood, remission is seen as an impossibility, something that God himself cannot offer to man. And so here is a principle as fixed as any other in God's economy, just as much as the fact that the soul that sins shall die. And in fact, these two ideas are intimately connected. For it is the fact that death is the wages of sin that explains why blood, which is the life, and necessitates a death in order to be shed, is the cost of atonement or remission. There is a beautiful just symmetry here. But seeing this immediately raises another question. And that is whether any blood was ever able to do this. We might very well accept that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission. But we are immediately confronted with a secondary question, and that is, where might I find such blood? I may accept this is true, but I find difficulty finding any blood that's able to do this. For it was certainly evident here in the Old Covenant ceremonies, as stated in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, and also in Hebrews chapter 9, 11 through 14, that uh, the blood of animals, the sacrifices of the Old Covenant, were woefully uh, unable to do so, and self-evidently so. It wasn't as though there was any mystery involved in this, for it is not possible, he says, chapter 10, verse 4, that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Here is a blood that is unable to fulfill the terms or the conditions as stated, chapter, two, uh, chapter 9, verse 22, that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. Well, here was a shedding of blood, but still there was no remission. Why? Because the blood was unworthy. And so here, indeed, was the great dilemma is facing uh, the, 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 the faithful of the old covenant. Not uh, as to whether blood could atone for sin, but finding a blood that could. And the great argument that we find in the New Covenant and in the New Testament, and especially uh, as expounded in Hebrews chapters 9 and 10, is that a blood has been shed which is able to do this and which is able to meet the terms as laid down again in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, and illustrated in Exodus chapter 24. Uh, 24. The assertion of Hebrews is that the blood of Christ did something the blood of bulls and goats could never do. And this becomes clear to me. This is what I was uh, beginning to preach in advance in the Lord's Supper this morning. This becomes clear to me. The saving power, the atoning efficacy of his blood. Just as soon as I realize who this person is. Which is exactly how, uh, not incidentally, the book of Hebrews begins with a statement of his pre-existent glory. This is indeed the very son of God. 
and nothing less than that. The very son of God, chapter one, who in chapter two, we discover became man. He became one like us. He took hold of us in our humanity. Why? In order that he might become our high priest, in order that he might in his manhood shed his blood for us. And so uh, the question which I have, the thing that amazes me is not that his blood really can atone for my sin. I have no difficulty there. The thing that amazes me and that even now I grapple to comprehend is that he should have any blood to shed, the very son of God. And yet again, that is the assertion of the new covenant, the incarnation of the son of God, that the word became flesh in order that in his flesh he might bear my sin and shed his blood, the very blood of the Son of God and the God-man, for my sin. That is the mystery which is revealed in the Incarnation. And there indeed we find a blood which is able not only to atone for sin, but a blood, he says uh, later on in chapter 9, which is worthy to be sprinkled upon the heavenly tabernacle or the heavenly sanctuary. You couldn't take the blood of bulls and goats and sprinkle it there, perhaps on the pattern or the copies that were found in the tabernacle. But Christ's blood is uh, worthy and sufficient and able not only to cleanse my guilty conscience and to remove the stain of sin from my guilty flesh, but even to sanctify and to prepare a place for me in the inner sanctum of God's holiness in heaven. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in heaven should be purified with these. That is the blood of bulls and goats in the tabernacle. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as uh, the high priest enters the most high place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. There is the glory of the gospel. The revelation of the mystery, the blood which saves. The terms are fulfilled. Hebrews chapter nine, verse twenty two. But then going back to the sacrifices of the old covenant and asking what purpose they served, realizing that they were utterly woeful and inadequate to provide or to fulfill the terms uh, of remission through the blood. We discover that the purpose of those sacrifices of Exodus uh, chapter 24 was not to provide a real atonement or remission, but a typical one. I'll say that again, not to provide a real atonement, but a typical one. In other words, they were pointers that pointed us in the direction that would lead us ultimately to the cross of Calvary. If you understood what was going on in Exodus 24, when the Messiah should come and die upon the cross, you would have no difficulty in accepting him. And yet, amazingly, it was these very people that stumbled upon this stone and the rock of offense, which is the cross. Even though it was those very sacrifices that made clear that blood was necessary for expiation. While at the same time making clear that the blood that was actually offered could not achieve this. These sacrifices laid down the essential features of atonement without actually achieving it. That was something, again, which was self-evident in so many ways. That it was animals, that it was repeated, that the high priest would die. 
Everything in the Old Covenant pointed in this direction uh, to its own insufficiency, but also in laying down the structures of redemption so that when the New Covenant should come in the dawn uh, and coming of Christ, especially in that he should shed his blood for me and cause me to participate in that blood, not only being shed, but then sprinkled. Then it all becomes clear. We become aware that God's procedure laid down in Exodus 24 was now being realized. But the next category, I said there were five features that are present in this covenant. And actually, the next one is the word covenant. And if you read Hebrews chapter nine, you'll see this. Now, you say we've already said that and we have, but it must now be uh, reconsidered in light of the point that was just made, the place of the blood in relation to the covenant. For the covenant itself is said to depend upon the blood and not to take effect until the blood is shed and sprinkled. If we understand a covenant as a relationship that is restored on account of sin. It is the blood which ratifies or inaugurates the covenant. It is, in fact, the blood of the covenant we read in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, for verse eight, not just the blood in relation to the covenant, but the blood of the covenant so that in a pivotal way, the covenant consists in the blood itself and is found there. It is the fundamental transaction that makes the covenant possible. One sin is entered in again, the spread, the shedding and the sprinkling of the blood. And we see this likewise in what the Lord says with regard to the institution of the new covenant covenant meal. Namely, the Lord's Supper, where he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is shed for you. It is exactly the same principle and exactly the same feature. But the next idea, in many ways, is the most crucial at all. And this is the thing that uh, Exodus 24 highlights and then Hebrews really uh, clinches. And that is the idea of a priest or priesthood. There's no way to make any sense of anything that is said in Exodus 24 or the book of Hebrews or really anything with regard to redemption in the Bible apart from this concept. For why should blood have any effect or offer any help to the people? In other words, what is it about Christ's blood that avails for me? And the answer is his priesthood. It is that he stands in so close a relation to me as to be able to pay for my sin and to bear the penalty for my sin. And then, uh, having done so, to present me to God as one who has been cleansed by his blood. And the reason he's able to do that is because of the concept of the priesthood and because he is my priest. That relationship, that relationship of representation is what we call a priest. As Hugh Martin says, priesthood rests on a personal relation. His office is absolutely groundless, meaningless and void, save as he is related and acts for me. He is ordained an ordained agent agent on behalf of men. And what we see in Exodus chapter 24 is precisely what we see in the New Testament. What we see there is that Moses is acting as the high priest of the people. Moses is the one who makes the sacrifices. Moses is the one who declares God's will to the people. Moses is the one who sheds uh, the blood through the animals and then sprinkles it upon the altar and then upon the people. You see there very naturally and obviously Moses 
acting as a high priest. And then he goes into heaven, as it were, on their behalf at the top of the mountain. And through him, they have access to God. Now, in every way, I've just described what a high priest is like. And it is exactly in those same ways that we are to comprehend Christ in his priesthood and his ministry to us and the precise relation that he bears to us as our great high priest. He is the one who declares the will of God to us in giving us the law and giving us scripture. He is the one uh, who sheds blood and sprinkles blood, only this time it is his own. He is the one who goes into the presence of the Father on our behalf. And, and we, through him, not on our own, but through him, in the presence and the person of the priesthood. He's gone into the presence of the Father on our behalf to appear there for us. But what we see is that everything that he does is so much better. The priesthood that he assumes, unlike Moses, is a perfected and an eternal priesthood. His blood and his intercession abide forever. None of that could be said under the old covenant. And so he's able to do all that the old priest could not, whether it was Moses or those who came after him. But it is, in fact, these very categories, once again, as found in Exodus 24, that invest Christ's present actions with such profound meaning. The structures of redemption. The whole idea of the priesthood, which is the very basis of our salvation. When we see Christ on the cross, beloved, we see him acting in his priesthood. When we see him in heaven appearing before God for us and assuring us of of salvation, we see him acting in his priesthood. And that is an idea that is established and confirmed in the old covenant And then brought into and perfected in the new. If you understand the idea of the priesthood, all of the gospel will be comprehended by you. Do not say that the book of Hebrews is only meant for Hebrew Christians. People who dealt with the priesthood and that's how they needed to see the priest or the the salvation of Christ. Because they were always dealing with the old covenant. The reality is that you will never grasp the gospel apart from this concept. The next two features, which I'll close with, are are secondary, admittedly, but they are seen as uh, connected as well with this covenant transaction. Uh, And the fourth of these is the written word. We find Moses writing down the words and giving them to the people, not only writing them, but speaking them uh, so that they might hear the word of God. And what we discover is that the book of Hebrews uh, seizes upon these same features, not in Hebrews chapter nine, but certainly in other places. The priesthood, I'm saying, there as well is seen in connection with the word of God. And if you see Exodus 24 is foundational, that will not surprise you at all. Now, that is uh, most obviously the case in Hebrews chapter 3. Let me just read a few verses from Hebrews chapter 3. We read, uh, beware. That's not right. Hebrews chapter 4, excuse me, I had the wrong chapter. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and of the joints of marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him 
whom we must give an account. Now, we could stop there and say there's a great passage on the word of God. But do you notice what comes next? Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. The word of God stated in connection with the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And that is also how the book of Hebrews begins. That God has been revealing his will in various ways and at various times. But now he has revealed his will through his son. He's spoken the word of God through his son who is the word of God. And who is also our great high priest. And so we could also look at a covenant like this. Once again it's depending upon a priest. God through the priest expressing his will to us. And the whole exhortation of Hebrews based upon what we find in Exodus is take care that you hear what God is saying through his servant and do not be like those who harden their hearts in the rebellion and fell in the wilderness. Listen to what God is saying through his priest who shed his blood. But the final concept we see is worship. And actually, Exodus begins, Exodus 24 begins with worship. Uh, we could also say drawing near and communing with God. It begins and it ends with these concepts. And this is also something which is hugely important in the book of Hebrews. But uh, actually, let me read what is said uh, in Exodus first. Uh, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 uh, from, of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And then we find the same thing at the end. Uh, and so, uh, obviously, this is something that is hugely important to this whole transaction that is occurring. The ratification of the covenant. The worshipping of God. The drawing near in the person of our high priest. Doing so with reverence and awe. A beholding of God on the mount. And enjoying the meal of communion. That's what worship is Portrayed to us as in Exodus 24. And then we come to Hebrews. It is portrayed to us in exactly the same way. Once again, not surprisingly. Worship is found, for instance, in Hebrews chapter 10. Or worship is found in Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, a favorite passage of Presbyterians. Let us worship with reverence and awe. In just the way we find in Exodus 24. Given the realities of the covenant. Don't you see how we ought to worship God? And how we ought to draw, draw near. And then don't you see how it's all connected. All of it. For God in drawing us to himself covenantally. Is equipping us to commune with him. To enter into his presence. On the basis of the blood of the priest. Jesus Christ. Which is why. As Hebrews tells us, and as Exodus tells us uh, in the opposite way through the negative example of the people, that the best evidence or the best testimony that one has been saved or one has participated savingly in the blood, not formally but spiritually and vitally, that he has been sprinkled truly, the best evidence of that is his earnest desire to worship God with God's people. For this alone completes the ceremony and the transaction found in the blood of the priest. The act of communing and the act of drawing near in the presence of the redeemed. And it is in light of that that you understand not only that emphasis in Exodus chapter 24, but the exhortation, especially of Hebrews chapter 10, which is seen. Now, I'm going to read that. I'm sure you know what it is. Let us not forsake gathering. That's what it is. 
But it's not just a general exhortation to go to church. But it is, as in Exodus 24, an exhortation to worship in the context of the covenant and the covenant transaction. And so, an exhortation which is intimately tied to the blood of the Savior shed for us. That's why, when we worship, we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. That's why we worship with reverence and awe. That's why we worship with a sense of assurance. Because we realize our salvation depends not upon ourselves, but upon his blood. That's why we adore and appeal to our great high priest in heaven and draw near to God through him. And so it is on that basis that I will not tire of saying, nor let us grow tired of hearing. And heeding the admonition is found in Hebrews chapter chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. An exhortation which you see is founded upon the covenant. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to to stir up love and good works, not forsake Taking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of son, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Amen. And let us uh, sing praise to our great high priest in heaven by standing together and singing hymn 223.